The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Joanna Miranda. She is the Technical Director at OMRI, which stands for the Organic Materials Review Institute. It's an independent, nonprofit organization that provides expert, independent, and transparent review of what we call input materials to determine their suitability for producing and handling organic foods specifically. Ms. Miranda oversees OMRI's policies and standards. She directs their research and education programs, and she manages special projects, including technical reports for the USDA's National Organic Program. Prior to OMRI, she served as the policy director for Pennsylvania Certified Organic, a USDA-accredited organic certification agency. She holds a bachelor's degree in horticultural science with a minor in biology from the Pennsylvania State University, and she is completing a master's degree in sustainable food systems at Green Mountain College. She has studied agriculture and ecology in Peru and New Zealand and has several years of academic research experience in plant nutrition. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you, Melinda. Thanks for having me. I am so happy to have this conversation with you because there's so much misconception about what organic is, what kinds of products are allowable on an organic farm, and I want to explore all this and more with you. But first, why don't you tell me how you became interested in horticulture and what led to you studying horticulture in Peru and New Zealand? Sure. Well, I had always been interested in science in school, and my mother was a master gardener, so we'd always be identifying the Latin names of plants in the garden and in the woods as we would hike. And so when I got to college, I knew I wanted to study something involving science and plants. So I ended up in horticulture, and that's at the Pennsylvania State University. Unfortunately, at that time, Penn State didn't have too much of a focus on organic production methods or sustainability within the horticulture department. So I I sought out opportunities to explore those areas of study in more detail as I could. So that led me to a study tour of Peru where my agroecology class spent a few weeks traveling and visiting small farms in Peru and focusing on the connection between food production, and the history of a place. So in Peru, of course, potatoes are a sacred plant, and we looked at how the conservation of potato varieties over hundreds of years has changed. And so that made me think more about conservation of biodiversity and how that plays into our food system. And then I also took an opportunity to do a semester of college in New Zealand, studying ecology. In my time there, I was able to study how globalization of our food system has taken place. Of course, New Zealand is quite remote, so there's definitely a different perspective on how international trade of food products occurs. And of course, being an island, 
there was an opportunity to study how invasive species and the impact of those can affect in quite irreversible ways the ecosystem of a place. So I was taking all of these international experiences, used them in my decision to study um, international agriculture after college. I was an assistant to grad students at Penn State in their field work and greenhouses and lab experiments, studying root structures of soybeans and corn as they grow in different nutrient-deficient soils so that particular cultivars could be selected to grow in international countries where resources were scarce. That's so interesting. I'd like to jump back to Peru for a moment. And you mentioned that you witnessed changes or you learned about changes in conservation practices. Can you talk about what kinds of changes you're describing? Sure. So over time, the number and quantity and variety of individual cultivars of a given crop dwindle Mm -hmm. as crops become domesticated and certain varieties take off commercially. So we're left with very, very few different potato varieties that are commercially produced today when there are actually hundreds and hundreds of beautiful colors and shapes and sizes that represent such a beautiful bounty of the history of Peru. Yeah. And it's really such a loss, not just for the food system, but for the culture itself. I agree. I think we've seen that internationally, right? It's not just Peru. I think about Africa, I think about the United States, and some of the varieties that we used to enjoy, say, 100 years ago versus today, we've also seen a narrowing of our exposure to different species. Absolutely. Hmm. Okay, what about New Zealand? I want to go there, too, because, as you mentioned, it's an island, it's remote. How food secure are they in terms of are they able to produce most of the food that the inhabitants are consuming, or is most of the food imported, like we see in Hawaii, for example? I would estimate that most of the food is imported, but during my time there, we really studied the global food system as a whole. So we were actually looking at food production in South America. I have a vivid memory of being in class and just realizing how massive and pervasive some of the food corporations are throughout the globe, and it it made the experience of globalization feel very close and personal. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that you had the ability to be at Penn State and recognize what was missing. You were looking for an organic program, and I'm curious about why you were specifically looking for organic, because I think what happens so often is that students go to college and they don't necessarily see what's missing, Although I do think there is a movement driven by students to bring back more organic and agroecological farming methods. But I'm curious about your own perspective. How did it come to be that you were at Penn State and you said, oh, I'm looking for organic information and I'm not seeing it here? Well, I don't know if I was necessarily looking for it specifically. Mm -hmm. I had maybe naively assumed that it would be there because in just my personal experience growing up, I was aware of environmental impacts of conventional farming and my family bought a lot of local food growing up. And so I expected going into horticulture that I would find that similar 
approach. Mm-hmm. But over time, I know that Penn State has definitely changed a lot. There's now organic classes. So it definitely is changing, and I think it has a lot to say for the voice of students and the just the general recognition of how our food is produced and yeah. maybe not being satisfied with the status quo. Yeah, and I have to agree, Joanna. Everywhere I see changes at university campuses, whether it's the food system, you know, whether it's the, the food in the cafeteria or the kinds of courses that are offered, they are definitely student-led. So for the individuals who are listening who are students, please know that your voice is very important. And parents, too, in choosing universities, there's so much competition. I wish I would have paid better attention to that when making decisions about, you know, what colleges we're going to look at for my own children in terms of what kind of food is served in the cafeteria, because that is going to reflect upon their health for the next four years. Okay, let me ask another question, and that is, how did you become interested or what attracted you to the Organic Materials Review Institute? What made you pursue a job with that institute? Great. Well, it led from my work at Pennsylvania Certified Organic, which is a accredited organic certification agency located actually just right by Penn State University. So I knew I wanted to work with farmers, organic farmers, supporting the organic food movement in any way that I could um, without actually being a farmer because that wasn't in my skill set. So at Pennsylvania Certified Organic, I got very involved in materials review. Um, The combination of a rigorous set of standards, the USDA organic regulations, combined with the movement of sustainability and being enacting change towards a better food system. The combination of those two things felt really right to me working at a certification agency. And I spent six years at Pennsylvania Certified Organic focusing mostly in materials review. And when I say materials, I mean the input materials that farmers use on their farm. So pest control, fertility inputs, livestock feeds, things like that. So I really honed my specialization in materials review, and when it comes to materials review, OMRI is the gold standard. And so I had been working with the OMRI resources and staff throughout my time working in organic certification, and it just was a great fit as I was able to gain experience and move up, and I'm so happy to be at at OMRI really performing this work at the highest level. Well, it is so important, and I know that when I talk to consumers about organic food, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. You know, one of the misconceptions, I think, is that that somehow the label is losing its strength, and I always tell consumers that organic is the best we've got in terms of protecting them against antibiotics, hormones, genetically engineered inputs, the most harmful pesticides, chemical fertilizers, but you explained to me a different way of looking at it, and that is that you know, we've got to remember that organic agriculture is a processed-based certification. Tell me what you mean by that. Right. So organic is a processed-based standard. And one thing I also like to preface this conversation with is acknowledging that organic certification is voluntary and that it's a marketing term. So all of these regulations are only required when a farmer or food processor chooses voluntarily to label their food as organic. And so all of the other 
systemic and chronic issues with our food system are still in place, even when you voluntarily choose to be certified organic. Give me an example. So it, Please. Consolidation of sort of like corporate ownership of brands. Sure. There, there's a really great academic work in that area by Philip Howard, and it is very true that smaller companies get bought by larger companies, reducing the diversity in the food system. And that's something that's not inherent just with the certified organic food system. It's inherent across all of our food system issues. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it is a criticism of the food system, and it's not something that being certified organic will fix. Sure. So let's talk about process-based. What does that mean exactly? So organic is process-based because in order to be certified organic, we're looking at the way that food is grown from seed to harvest and on into processing. So the way that a farm is managed, the soil is cared for, the inputs as well, all of those things dictate whether the final harvested product can be certified organic. This is not a standard that's based on testing. You can't look at a product in the marketplace and say, yes, that's organic, or no, that's not organic. There's no test to be done. So in that way, organics is very meaningful when it comes to certification because we're really looking at the entire production process from beginning to end instead of just looking at that final harvested product and saying yes or no. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a tremendous protection for the end consumer to know that the whole process under which their food is being produced is being carefully looked at for these specific requirements. And do you want to talk about those specific requirements? Sure. So the key production requirements, when we think about what it means to be certified organic, start in the soil. Um, the way that soil is managed in terms of their, the cultivation practices must maintain or improve soil health and organic matter um, and reducing erosion. Crop nutrients and soil nutrients must be managed. Cover cropping is a required practice. Um, the natural resources of the operation must be assessed and maintained. So any cultivation practices must not put those natural resources at risk. Mm. Um, and also preventative practices. So any pest, weed, or disease issue that's happening um, must be managed preventatively. And all of these things factor into the process-based standard. And I think it also is it gives organic farmers a lot to rely on because they're not going to grow their crops and at the end of it say, no, that's not certified organic. It gives a lot of room and flexibility for creativity and innovation on the farm and also continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined today by Joanna Miranda. She is the technical director at OMRI, which stands for the Organic Materials Review Institute, which is an independent nonprofit organization that provides expert, independent, and transparent review of input materials to determine their suitability for producing and handling organic food and fiber. Well, Joanna, one of the issues that comes up often that disturbs me a little bit is that people will say, you know, well, I don't know why you're buying organic food or why you're so in favor of it because 
Organic farmers use pesticides too, as if to say we know conventional farmers use pesticides. We know that there are pesticides that are allowed in organic systems, but it's not a one-to-one trade-off, is it? It's a little bit different in terms of our perspective of use. So could you explain how that works and why or how we can talk to consumers when they tell us, well, I don't know why you're buying organic. Yes, I get that question a lot too, and I love to debunk that myth that organic producers use just as much or the same pesticides as conventional farms. And it's it's really not, you're right, it's not a one-to-one thing that's not comparing um, similar scenarios. And first we have to acknowledge that, yes, organic farms have pests too, and so pest control measures are needed to be in place in order to have a, a nice, healthy crop. But when it comes to deciding which individual substances are allowed to be used for controlling pests or weeds or diseases, the allowances are very, very regulated in the organic standards. The USDA organic requirements prohibit all synthetic materials with very few exceptions. And those exceptions have to go through a very rigorous review process in order to be considered an allowable exception. So I'm going to point out the three criteria that must be met in order for a synthetic substance to be allowed for use in organic crop production. Okay. First, the synthetic substance must be found to not be harmful to human health or the environment. Second, the synthetic substance must be necessary for production because of the unavailability of natural substitutes. Mm -hmm. And lastly, the substance must be consistent with organic farming principles. So all of those criteria must be met, and a, a federal advisory board makes the decisions on whether an individual material meets those criteria. So this is not an arbitrary decision. And ultimately, we end up with a very, very small list of specific synthetic substances that have been found to meet these criteria and are allowed. Well, I like the ability to go to the OMRI website and be able to look up different products to see if they are or are not accepted. Because I think sometimes, you know, I've heard people tell me that a certain product is allowed and then I go to the list and I say, no, actually it's not. And here is the resource where you can check. So for people who have misconceptions about what kinds of pesticides are allowed, the natural, naturally occurring pesticides, maybe you can give us some examples of, of how and which ones might be used. Tell me how we might use the OMRI site to better navigate pest control, for example. Sure. The, the OMRI website, it's omri.org, has lots of information that is free and available to the public. We have a nice search tool where you can type in any substance, whether it's a generic material like limestone or even a brand name, and then you'll get lots of, of um, information on those search terms. So you'll be able to find um, individual substances, natural, synthetic um, substances used for crop production, whether it's pest control, fertility inputs, 
But we also look at materials across a broader spectrum of organic production, so livestock, uh, healthcare treatments, and processing, food additives, um, facility cleaners and sanitizers. We run the gamut, so there's lots of information there. And anything that's included on this list, correct me if I'm wrong, goes through the National Organic Standards Board first? The items that are listed in OMRI's generic materials list are based on the USDA National Organic Program standards. So the the federal standards do not list every single substance that may or may not be used. The way that the standards are set up, they say any non-synthetic is allowed except what's listed here in the regulations. And any synthetic material is prohibited except what's listed here in the regulations. So OMRI goes through and populates hundreds of additional materials to let you know which individual material is it synthetic or natural and therefore is it allowed or not. So most people find the OMRI list to be a really essential companion to the actual federal standards themselves. I see. Yeah, I find it to be a wealth of information. For example, I was curious about adding fertilizers, you know, compost, manure, mulch. And I was concerned especially about contaminants, like we see arsenic oftentimes in poultry litter, cadmium, lead. These are harmful minerals in that can contaminate our food. And you pointed me to a site on the OMRI list that shows maximum concentrations of elemental contaminants. So we know that if a product is OMRI certified, then it is going to protect us against contaminants. Yes, that is true. So this is another way that OMRI adds more more criteria, more verification points to the basic standards that are required under the federal uh, National Organic Program regulations. So the standards say in general terms, that input materials must not contribute to the contamination of crops, soil, water, or plants by plant organisms, heavy metals, pathogens, or residues of prohibited substances. So OMRI takes that one sentence, and we put lots of detail into it. So when we review brand name and formulated fertility input materials, we assess them to specific thresholds that our internal advisory council has developed. So in terms of manure or poultry litter, if those substances are being used in a brand name product, we do require testing of certain heavy metals. You mentioned arsenic, cadmium, and lead, so we do have thresholds for those. And several other um, high-risk contaminants such as fecal coliform and salmonella in certain high-risk materials. So, yes, we do try and do our best to identify high-risk pieces of materials um, or sources of materials and assign consistent and transparent thresholds to them so that consumers and organic farmers can trust that when they use an OMRI-listed product, they are not going to be contributing to contamination. That's great. Are there any other points that you want our listeners to know about OMRI and how it either protects or helps farmers or about organic farming in general from your experience? 
Well, I guess Omri provides a service that is really niche and specialized within the organic regulatory environment. Typically, at a a certifier that's providing the organic certification services for a farm or processor, they will specialize in actual farming practices and understanding which production practices are compliant with the regulations. But when it comes to materials, it takes a very highly trained chemist in some cases, really understanding nuances of input material manufacturing, and, it, and it's usually an area of expertise that a lot of people steer clear of because it can get very technical and nuanced. Mm-hmm. But at Omri, our staff of almost 50 at this point, we love to get into the weeds with this technical materials review. So we are proud to be the gold standard and the specialists in material review. Um, we use those credentials to actually train other certifiers and other staff to conduct material review at this level. And is there a way, let's say people are listening to this program, is there a staff person available to answer questions of either consumers or organic farmers? Yes. Our technical department, which I lead, is happy to take questions. We offer different subscription levels for any member of the public if you are interested in getting more detailed information and direct correspondence with new issues. And then we also have staff members that are specialized and trained to deal with manufacturers of these input materials to prepare them for the application process. So if I was a manufacturer trying to produce, say, a fertilizer, and I wanted it to be specific or available to the organic farming market, I would work with staff at Omri to make sure that it met the specifications? Yes, absolutely. And a great first step is to go to our website and search for the individual materials or ingredients that might be in the product. And that'll give you just a quick snapshot of yes or no, or is is this type of ingredient generally allowed or generally prohibited? And then the actual status of the material will depend on much more specific and nuanced information. But it's at least a good first check. And there's lots of information on the website about how to apply, how to get more information about the application process. Well, this is great to know. So I also like to find out the history of organizations. So there's also the history of Omri. And I was so interested to see that you know, it was founded in 1997 to evaluate materials for use in organic agriculture. And at the time, there were more than 40 certifiers who were performing certification using various state and private standards. It must have been a mess. <laughs> yes, they called it the Wild West <laughs> back then. And now that Omri is celebrating our 20th year, we can really see how far the industry has come. But even still, material review is one of those aspects of certification that really takes a specialist. So we we still hold that uh, representation quite well. Well, this has been so informative. I want to thank you so much for sharing the history and some of the work that goes on behind the scenes at Omri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I really want to thank my guest, Ms. Joanna Miranda, who is the Technical Director at Omri, the Organic Materials Review Institute. And there's a wonderful website. If you're curious at all about anything that happens with regard to organic farming inputs, this is the place to go, www.omri.com. 
ERI. Org. And so if somebody tells you that a specific chemical is allowed or not, you can double check right at that website, right? That's right, Melinda. Thank you so much.